turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. Continue our way through 2 Kings. We'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 2. And if you are able to, would you please stand in order to honor the reading of the words of our God. If you're unable to, then stand with a sense of honor as well. I mean, sit with a sense of honor as well. 2 Kings chapter 2. Verse 1, the word of God says, Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away from you your will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood up on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he struck the water, the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other. And Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not sin. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Sin. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is unpleasant, as my Lord Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed the water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. 
So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and he, as he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. Thank you very much. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and Lord, we thank you for the living hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that even in the midst of chaotic times, Lord, your word is still true, and the, the, the word, your word is still continuing to go forth and minister to us and bring people to the living hope that's found in Jesus Christ alone. Lord God, I ask that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word, so that every heart might confess that Christ is Lord. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is going on here? <laughs> when you read 2 Kings chapter 2, you can't help but think, what in the world is going on? You have this miraculous water crossing. You have chariots of fire from heaven. You have this bad water made good. You have bald heads and bears. And what in the world is going on? As I was reading and, and studying this chapter this week, you know, my head was, was spinning. It, you know, it's, it, it's chaotic, right? And as chaotic as this chapter seems, of moving from scene to scene to scene, it's a real reflection of the times in which Elijah and Elisha lived. And really, this chaos that we see here is what happens when people turn their backs on God. You see, friends, in the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of the king of Israel turning his back on God, as we saw last week, and seeking after the idols of the gods of the nations around him, in the midst of the chaos and idolatry and immorality, God is still speaking. His word is coming true. The ministry of the word is going forth and continuing on. And friends, the same is true for us today. Just like in the days of Elijah, there is still work now today to be done. God's word needs to be declared, it needs to be delivered, and it needs to be believed. You know, as you look at this chapter here, there's so much packed in to the, just these 25 verses. You know, I, I often think when reading in the New Testament and reading the Apostle Paul or Peter, thinking about how much they pack into a chapter, well how much the writer of 2 Kings packed into this one, right? We have these three major scenes. The first one being sort of the passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha. And, and then you have Elisha taking up this prophetic mantle, mantle with this water cleansing. And then you have this account of baldness and bears, which I cannot wait to get to in my life verse. So, the first scene here that we see is the passing of the mantle in verses 1 through 18. This, this mantle, this prophetic torch, if you will, is being passed. The prophetic ministry is passing now, transitioning from Elijah to Elisha. Elisha is going to be the prophetic successor. Now remember, back in 1 Kings 19, what did God tell Elijah to do? He told him to go and to anoint Elisha to be his his heir, right? To call him to, to serve him, 
to go and anoint Elisha. And so Elisha has done that. Elisha has been mentored and served under the prophet Elijah for years. And now the time has come for Elisha to take up that role. To take up the role of being one of the main, if not the main prophet of his day. God had called him to serve all the way back in 1 Kings 19, and he had answered. And so now he's willing to step up and serve. And as we think of this transition, friends, I want you to be thinking about in your own life how how Elisha was called to serve, and now here he is taking up the mantle, taking up the ministry to serve. How is God calling you today to serve? How is he calling you to serve him today? Keep that in your mind as we go through this text today. And as you look at this chapter, you'll notice that there's sort of a geographic procession and progression with Elijah and Elisha. They start off in Bethel, they go to Jericho, then they cross the Jordan, and then Elijah's taken up. And then you have Elisha then going back and retracing the steps of crossing the Jordan and then going to Jericho and then to Bethel. And you have, in this, in this first scene here, you have Elijah also asking Elisha three questions. They're all the same questions. Did you catch that? He's basically saying, why don't you just stay here? And Elisha answers the same way in all three of those occasions. So why is Elijah asking Elisha to stay? There's all kinds of suggestions uh, that, that different commentators have said. Of maybe it's a test of Elisha's real commitment. Is he really committed to following God? Uh, is he really committed to following through with the ministry? Or uh, others have suggested, well, Elijah is just a grumpy old man who wants to be alone. I don't really know why he's asking him, but uh, he, he states, right? He states. He's saying, basically, I'm going to be with you until the end. And as they go from these different towns, you'll notice that the first one they go to is Bethel. And, and, and the second one is Jericho. So Bethel and Jericho. Two centers of pagan idolatry. Bethel was where the king Jeroboam had set up his golden calf in the northern kingdom and started this, the, these priests who were not Levites. So, so began to turn the nation away from the Lord. So a center for idolatry there in the northern kingdom. And Jericho, what do we know about Jericho? Well, Jericho was cursed. Cursed by Joshua. The, the first town that Israel had conquered when they crossed the Jordan and went into the promised land, when, when Joshua had taken over for, for Moses, the city was devastated. And, and Joshua said that the man, whoever, tr- whoever tries to rebuild Jericho is going to be cursed by God, and they're going to lose their first two sons. Well, in the days of Ahab, a man by the name of Hale had rebuilt Jericho. And what happens? He loses his two sons. So Jericho and Bethel, the, the sinners of idol worship. But you know who is also there in the midst of those pagan sinners of idolatry? Did you catch who else was there? You see that there's two of these groups there. These two groups of the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel and then also in, in Jericho. Who were these, these sons of the prophets? Well, they're, they're a community of 
prophets. They were followers of, uh, of the major prophets of the day, like Elijah, and then here uh, and elsewhere, uh, Samuel as well. So yes, while there is a ton of idolatry taking place in that community, God still had some faithful ones there. In one sense, we could say God had set up in these pagan cities strategically a community of prophets. One pastor put it this way, in places of great darkness, we need Bible preaching and teaching believers. And how true is that for us today, right? Uh, All across the globe, all across the world, in places of great darkness... There are outposts of the kingdom of Christ declaring His word, receiving His word, and believing His word, and taking God's word to the ends of the earth. God has these men strategically placed there so that they could be a light in a dark place. So they go to Bethel, they go to Jericho. Now they're arriving at the Jordan River. And really what we have going on here are some parallels with, with Moses and Elijah, and with Joshua and Elisha. There, there's some parallels going on here with these geographic locations of, of going out of the promised land and then coming back into the promised land. Moses had passed on the torch of his leadership to Joshua. Here, we're going to have a parallel between Elisha passing on his mantle to... Uh, sorry, Elijah passing on his mantle to Elisha. And so as they arrive at the Jordan River, you have, them, you have uh, just like Moses crossing the Red Sea, you now have Elisha and Elijah crossing the Jordan miraculously. And then afterwards, Elisha crosses back, reminiscent of Israel's crossing the Jordan River after the passing of Moses and Joshua leading the people into the promised land. And so as they're standing there, though, look at verse 9. When they had crossed... Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. So he asked this question of, What do you you want? And Elisha responds with this double portion. it's It's a terminology used for an heir, the firstborn. The firstborn in their day would inherit a double portion portion of the inheritance so elisha is asking let me carry on the work that you have been doing i want to be your prophetic heir and continue in the ministry that you have started in other words he's asking for the resources that elijah had received to declare the word of the lord to continue with him and so elijah responds you have asked a hard thing verse 10 if you see me as i am being taken from you it shall be so for you but if you do not see me it shall be so, which is Elijah's last words. And in other words, he's saying, God will grant this to you if he so wills. And then he is taken from Elisha. Look at verse 11. As they were still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, and he saw him no more. So as they're going along, Elijah is then taken up into heaven with these chariots of fire and horsemen. And and you just love the way it reads, right? 
it's so matter of fact. It's going on and these chariots of fire from heaven come and take up Elijah and he's gone. And then Elisha cries out and the narrative just moves on. Chariots were reminiscent, they were war vehicles, right? They were a sign of power, military power. The fire here likely represents the authority and the power of God. In one sense, when Elijah is taken off like this, it's like the author is saying the army of God that was represented in Elijah and his ministry has come and gone. Remember, Elijah, uh, alone, standing at Mount Carmel there, the, the last defense as is, is all of the, the prophets, these false prophets and the Baal worshipers, he's holding back the flood of idolatry, and now he's gone. I, Elisha identifies the chariots as the true army of Israel. You see that? He says, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha saw him no more. He didn't see Elijah again, but he'll see this army again in chapter 6. So instead of, of the, the chariots and the horses that Israel's kings had tried to build up, here we see the true army of the Lord comes and takes Elijah away. Elijah's gone. The ministry and the man is gone. So what is going to happen next if you look at the end of verse 12 it says then he elisha took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces and he took up the cloak that had fallen the cloak of elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the jordan so we see the taking up of the mantle uh, elisha takes up elijah's mantle his cloak that fell. So he's taking up Elijah's mantle both literally and metaphorically. He's going to continue the work of the Lord that began in Elijah. Remember back in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah first called Elisha, what did he do? He goes and he puts his cloak on him, his, his mantle on him, right? And now it's time for Elisha to take it up for himself. His mentor is gone. And now it's time for him to continue the work of the ministry. You know, friends, this last year, we've had a number of very hardworking saints here at First Baptist either called home to the Lord in glory or, or they've moved. So who's going to take up their mantle? Who, who are going to, to give and serve and evangelize? Who's going to take up that mantle today? Or will you just let that mantle fall to the ground? Who's going to take it up? Elisha takes up the mantle. And now as, the, as this chapter continues, we're going to see these three miracles happen. And, and what the miracles are doing is they're validating Elisha's ministry. Right? So there's, there, there's a new prophet, but, but how do they know that this is the one whom God has called? Well, God is now going to confirm and validate Elisha's ministry as the, pro as the main prophet here through these miracles. First, you have the part, the first miracle is the parting of the Jordan, right? And he heads to Jericho, just like who else did? 
Joshua, right? Who took over for Moses. So Elisha strikes the water and he, sh- he shouts, where is the Lord? Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And what happens? God parts the water, right? And he walks across on dry ground. So the Lord answers and parts the water, demonstrating that the Lord is with Elisha. And then you have the second miracle now happening in verses 19 through 22. This miracle is occurring at Jericho. And as Elisha is moving from the Jordan to Jericho, he hears this word that the water is sick, it's unhealthy, it's, it's unfruitful. As you see, it made the land unfruitful in verse 19. And so what does Elisha do? He says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So he takes a new bowl, he takes salt, and salt was often associated with God's covenant with his people. It was used for offerings that were made to the Lord, and it was used in different rituals. And then he throws it in the water, and he says, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now, as we read this account, or these accounts of these miracles, these miraculous interventions, was it really the salt that healed the water? Should we all just go around and start putting salt in our water? Not unless you want to get dehydrated or delusional, right? No, no, the prophets in the Old Testament would often use symbolic actions. And that's what's happening in here. Uh, this salt, right, related to God's covenant with His people. And now it's, it's not the salt that did the healing. It was the power of God, miraculously intervening. Now, friends, no doubt there have been some skeptics of the Bible who've looked at these miracles like this and said, you see, this Bible, they think that poison water can just be fixed with salt. But don't you think the writer of Second Kings knew that right that's why this is shown to be a miracle it's shown to be a vindication that the power of god is continuing to work through elisha and there are those who have who there have been those who question and who doubt the miracles found in the bible for instance you have thomas jefferson who cut out all the miracles of the bible or, or, or there have been those who doubted and questioned the, the validity of these miracles recorded in the Scriptures. Friends, think about it this way. The, the heart of our faith, the validity of the Christian faith, rests in the fact that the God-man Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. Paul actually writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus did not actually die and physically, bodily raised from the dead then what? Christians are the, peop- the most to be pitied, meaning that we are the most foolish people in the world. Friends, if that happened, if Jesus really did come back to life, conquering sin and death, bringing life to all who would believe in Him, if that really did happen, then certainly these other miracles in the Bible could happen. Or, or think about how the Bible begins, right? Genesis 1. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Meaning, and then you see in the rest of Genesis chapter 1, what does God do? He speaks, and the world is created. 
If God could do that, then God can do these other miracles in the Bible. Now, I don't want to be too hard on those who, who struggle with these miracles. Miracles are not easy to naturally believe. They're hard to believe, right? Actually, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 17. Right here we have the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has risen from the dead and He has appeared now to the eleven. And they're waiting there to receive the directions for what they should do next. Miracles are hard to believe. Look at what, look at what Matthew says here. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. So they saw the resurrected Jesus. But how does that verse end? But some doubted. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's remarkable, isn't it? The founders of Christianity, the apostles, they, they, they saw Jesus with their own eyes. They, they look straight at him, right there. He was in front of them. They could see him with their own eyes. Thomas would even touch him. Some of them even touched him, in verse, as we see there. And yet some still doubted. There's no other reason for, the, 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 for Matthew to include that here, unless it actually did happen, right? Why would you, why would you say that some of your, your first leaders began with doubt? Unless it really happened. Matthew 28 shows us that the apostles, they responded to the miracle of the resurrection just like anyone in our day would. Some believed their eyes and some didn't. And, and so I think this calls us, friends, to have patience on those who initially doubt, right? Eventually, all of the apostles here ended up as great leaders in the early church although some initially had doubts. Some had more trouble believing than others. And, and maybe you're here this morning and, and you do struggle with the idea of these miracles. Well, know that you're in good company because some of the apostles began that way when they saw the resurrected Jesus. They initially doubted. However, over time, their hearts were convinced. And their doubts were gone. So don't write off the Bible simply because you have a hard time with these miracles. But if we approach the Bible with that, that mindset, that understanding, the faith that we have that God is the creator of all, that He is all-powerful and He does as He pleases and He does what is good. And, and if Jesus truly did rise from the dead, and there's all sorts of valid historical reasons for that really happening, then certainly all these other miracles could happen as well. And they did. These miracles that we see in the Bible are not fables. They're not magic tricks. They happened in real time and space history. Why? Because I saw them? No. Why? Because Christians hold to some primitive worldview? No. We see that right there with the apostles, right? They didn't believe at first. 
No, these happened because the God who spoke the world into existence, the God, Jesus Christ, who defeated sin and death, has the power to do these miraculous acts. Tim Keller put it this way, his miracles, speaking of Jesus' miracles, they're not just proofs that he has power, but also a wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming someday. And we see that here, right? With this miraculous healing of the water. We see that in the ministry of Jesus. It's a glimpse of a world that is no longer uh, cursed by sin. No longer feels the effects of sin. So we can trust these miracles. We can trust the validity of the scriptures. Because the God who spoke the world into existence is alive. The Lord Jesus Christ is alive. And so all these other miracles are really nothing in comparison to those incredible miracles. The incredible miracle of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. So, God is validating Elisha's ministry here. Through this, the, the miraculous water crossing, the miraculous healing of the water. And through this miraculous judgment. We could say the bearers of judgment. Let the listener understand. The bearers of judgment we see now in Second Kings chapter 2 verse 23 and 24. As I jokingly said, come now to my life verse, the fate of all of those who make fun of people who have bald heads. We see that as Elijah is now heading to Bethel, Verse 23, he said, While they were going up on the way, some small boys came up out of the city and jeered at him. Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And the two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. It's kind of a gruesome story, right? But, but we need to understand what's going on here. We see that the my translation puts it small boys, but the, the little word there is it, it could be either small boys or it could be you. We also see that there was 42 of them who were mauled, right? So there's at least 42 young boys there. That's a mob, right? And, and, and what are they doing? They're saying, go up. Now, where is Elisha? He's in Bethel. And so likely they're, 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 they're saying go up, meaning go up onto the hill and worship Baal. Saying, oh, you're really the prophet? You should just go worship Baal. And then judgment comes upon them. And you know what? They had been warned, right? They'd been warned in the ministry of Elijah. They'd been warned even prior. In Leviticus chapter 26, verses 21 and 22, God says that if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. In other words, God had warned them that if you, all the way back in Leviticus, right? If you continue to walk in a way that is contrary to me, you will be judged. And part of that judgment is the sending of wild beasts. 
And so these bears are bearers of God's judgment for them continuing in sin, continuing in idolatry. And remember who Elisha is, right? He's taken up the prophetic mantle. He is, he's taken up the prophetic ministry of Elijah. In other words, he is a, he's a prophet, so he is the bringer of God's word. He is the ambassador of God to the people. So here, the mocking that they are doing is they're actually mocking God. Their response to Elisha is actually a response to the word of God. Their response to Elisha determines whether they receive blessing or whether they receive curse and judgment. Their response to him means they'll either receive life or they'll be judged. And here, they're judged. They're judged for rejecting God's word. And friends, judgment is coming upon you if you don't turn from your sin. That that judgment, though, has ultimately been met in Jesus Christ. So would you turn from your coming judgment and trust in God who delivers and saves, who brings life from death? How will you respond to the Word of God today? Will you believe it? Will you receive it and be blessed for all eternity? Or will you reject it and be judged? Friends, how do you respond to the good news found in Jesus Christ? Is it a message that you just dismiss? Or do you try to center your lives around the good news and the hope, the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ? 2 Kings chapter 2. These were chaotic times in Israel. They were dark times in Israel. The days in which we live are chaotic and dark. Dark times. But we see, just as God continued the work, now through Elisha, so He continues to work today in us, the church. And and the Lord's Supper that we're about to take is a reminder of that, right? That He's going to continue to work until He comes back. The, The darkness and the chaos cannot stop the Word of God from going forth. As John writes in John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome. Friends, God is still at work in this church here. And the sign of that will be, will we pick up the mantle and continue to be a witness here in our community, declaring, receiving, and believing the word of God? Or will we reject it? Friends, the Lord God works even in dark days. Even in dark days, the word goes forth and will not be silenced. Even the, a Roman execution on a cross outside of Jerusalem could not silence the word of God or the word from God. Yes, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, there was darkness and there was silence that filled the earth. But three days later, that darkness and that silence was broken. And now we, the church today, like the church before us for the last 2,000 years, continue to speak that word in the silence that He is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your word that reminds us that You are still at work in the midst of chaotic and dark times. Lord, we we thank You for this sign 
of your covenant that's present with us today, of, of, of the bread and the cup, the reminder that you have spoken to us through your Son. That you didn't leave us in silence, that you didn't leave us in darkness, but you sent us your one and only Son to bring us light and to bring us hope. And so, Lord, may we continue to declare this good news of Jesus Christ until He returns. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.